welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We have a very, very special guest today. I am debating when to introduce our special guest. Tammy, what do you think? Should we should we keep the audience in suspense for a little bit? Okay, more? now our oh, cover is blown. Gave it away. Yeah. They probably read the title to the episode. Well, what if we didn't put it in the title? Because we haven't we haven't written the title right now. We could just put like special you know, guess. guess who's back or <laughs> return of the man. Return guess. <laughs> By the way, the the uh, amount of shelf life that that song has gotten, Return of the Mac, is amazing. I mean, that song has by been forever. No, it's not by Macklemore, dude. Wait, what? The, you Macklemore? don't know that song? No, Return Which of the Mac. Which song are you talking? Return of the Mac. You don't know that song? No. Oh my god, that's Andy. That's embarrassing. Yeah, Tammy, sorry. do you know that song? No, I, apparently the shelf life is so good. You don't know Return of the Mac? <laughs> oh my god! I feel like Macklemore. Covered it or used that phrase a lot. I apologize. I apologize for Macklemore. Yeah, it was um, early '90s, I think. Maybe. Early Wait, can 80s. you sing more of it? I, <laughs> Wait, who who sing that? Is that? Mark Morrison. I, you guys don't oh, know this. Okay, anyway, it's been two minutes of me asking you if you've heard this. <laughs> <laughs> you you both embarrassing yourself. Andy is back. Andy, hey, how's hey, it going? Andy. Welcome back. Well, we brought Andy. How are you doing, by the way? And so many things have happened to Andy's life since the last time he was yeah. On, yeah. Like, uh, he was on the show. So what's the first thing that happened? Uh, the most important thing is we have a second kid now. Um, it's been a month since yesterday, uh, as of yesterday. It's been crazy. Um, You're so but, tired. Oh, my yeah. God. I'm actually... You know, this, this is kind of what happens a lot with the second kid. The dad kind of takes over this, the older kid and the mom kind of focuses on the younger one. And uh, so I kind of feel like because uh, of feeding and stuff. Yeah, I feel yeah. guilty. I'm getting better rest for sure. Um, it's weird because you're kind of operating on two timelines where, you know, everyone says if you have a second, um, all the things that worried you about the first are less worrisome, like the first you're like oh is this rash a sign of something horrible it's actually not right or you know they're like is it okay if they like sleep on their stomach once and it's totally fine so with one kid i'm just like it's fine as long as he's alive it's fine <laughs> but with the other kid i'm still going through the kind of the, the the original phase of like if she is acting you know really stubborn one day is this like something i have to correct right now because otherwise she'll just she's just, she's just gonna grow up and be like you know, this kind of person or something. So like, so you still anxiety. feel more fixated on the older kid? No, well, I'm spending a lot more time with the older kid, but it's it's weird because there's still this sort of like uncharted territory with the older kid because I've never raised a four-year-old or a five-year-old or a six-year-old before, but with the younger kid, yeah. right, it's very much like whatever, like Everything. none of this stuff matters. Right. Any sort of small, you know, injury is not serious and blah, blah, blah. So it, it is kind of this weird, like two different two different mindsets of, of parenting at the same time. Is your um, other kid in kindergarten now? She's going to be in another year or so. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, things are good. I mean, my parents are here. Um, first time I've seen them since before COVID, uh, which is oh, kind of wow. crazy. And uh, yeah, we're just kind of surviving. The issue is also that we had this um, gap between my four-year-old's summer camp and her school starting. And we're like, should we fill it up with some other random activity like no let's like spend time together spend time with my parents and um you know my grandparents grandparents aren't actually like a substitute for like childcare. um 
So yeah. it's been it's been kind of it's been crazy. Like every day, I don't know. I mean, everyone goes through this period of uh, there's no childcare. Um, things are crazy, and but uh, you know, I was, I was talking to uh, some friends, and they had kind of the same experience where you know you bring your parents in and you watch your parents interact with like a three year old or a four year old for the first time, you know, since like you were four, which you have no memories of. And it's this bizarre experience of like, I almost feel like it's like, it's a wonderful life where you're like watching your own life yeah. before your eyes. Like you're watching your own parents handle a four-year-old and you're imagine. like, oh, that's, that must've been what it was like when they handled like me when I was four. Um, and But maybe they're doing it better now, right? Yeah. My, that's I mean, my thought is my parents are issue, much, much, much nicer now. No, no. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. that, that, did act, that has happened with my partner. their grandkids. Yeah. Then. My partner's parents are like that. And, and that kind of weirds them out. But no, with my parents, it's like, I, I kind of like, I had all these <laughs> expectations. My parents would come in and be like these model grandparents. Yeah. And would like spend time reading books with my four-year-old and like. Exactly. You know savoring every moment to teach them new things about the world. And they're not like that at all. And, (laughs) and in hindsight, I think what I realized was I was expecting my parents to be like better parents than they were for me. Right. Right. And that's not, that's not how it's, I mean, they are just who they are and that's fine. And like, I'm, I think I'm like slowly adapting to that, but like, you know, um, I have like the pandemic kind of screwed up old people, you know, grandparenting is like down. As a commodity, <laughs> what? because old a, people are oh, just, just like, I'm not gonna spend my life take taking care of another kid. You know, I can go at any time. At right, like it sort right. of reinforces mortality for them. Oh, and I this see. idea or that it's they're the gonna opposite and it's no, so absolutely not. Really, absolutely not. Yeah, I can speak from personal experience. <laughs> That's hilarious. But also from hearing from a lot of other people, Andy, who have gone through what you have gone through, which is just that, like, I think older people are just like you know what, I am going to go on a cruise and check right. it out. You know, maybe <laughs> yeah. I will go walk the, you know, I'm going to go walk uh, the, the, the grass fields of Mongolia and see the step, you know, I, <laughs> I believe it's called because I see wild true. horses run around. Like I see in those paintings in Chinese restaurants, you know, <laughs> and like, I'm not sitting with this kid. He's like six months old. What the, what the no, fuck totally. Is this kid gonna do? I think, you know, their attitude I, is like, my job is to cook a shitload of food and then yeah. like put some money in a savings account. And that's like, my job as a grandparent is done. Um, and, but, yeah, yeah. but thinking, but thinking about like my own child, like, Oh, my parents actually never spent time with me either. You know, reading so they're just acting book. the same. As yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's Nothing just bizarre. I, I tell my friend, it's basically going to, uh, like, they're staying with us for two months. It's, like, going to be two months of therapy or two months of, like, Or you just have, you have, like, a roommate. <laughs> That's a long time. You have, like, a roommate, you know? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're actually <laughs> they're they're renting a place. House, they're they're renting a place. Yeah. So oh, thanks for that. But that also exacerbates things because, you know, they're not, like, it's not like a sitcom where they're just like, everybody loves Raymond. They're just coming over to hang out for hours. They're yeah. just like, there are days when they don't come over. And I don't think they're like mad at us. They're just like, well, we have nothing to do. So we're just going to stay in our house and watch YouTube all day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're like Wilson like, from home. Improvement. <laughs> yeah. You just need to Behind get a little, ha- a little <laughs> fence. <for that>. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this old person tech is really true. You know, like yeah. I think they're like basically, and I listen for me, I love it for them, you know, because, like old people, like I get it. My parents moved to Brooklyn, which was like, you know, whatever. I'll do all the caveats. Like what an amazing privilege, you know, in life. I'm like kind of overdoing this type of stuff. 
that's a side note. They came to Brooklyn with you. Wow. I'm just going to stop apologizing for things, you know, and thinking, oh, no, you know, other people are going to be mad. I'm just like, you know what? Sometimes people's parents move next to them when they, you know, it's an amazing privilege. I agree. Anyway, they moved next to me when when Frankie was three months old. And then, and it was like great for me. It was their first grandkids, so maybe it was okay for them. (laughs) But now in retrospect, I'm just like, that's tough, you know? And then I just like, and then my sister had a kid and they had to do it all over again. Right. 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 And at some point, you're just over it, you know? And like, as um, the grandparent, yeah. Yeah. And then when you're with COVID, where you're just like, well, my friends are dying. And also, this is not, I'm not talking specific about my parents. I'm just talking about the state of old people in general, you know? But like, wow, you know, some of my friends died and everyone my age, like, you know, like if they caught this thing at the beginning, like it was pretty bad. And why would I do this? <laughs> I am right, just going right. to watch YouTube. What happened to the Mongolian steppes? Yeah, exactly. YouTube. Exactly. Well, look, that's also a privilege thing. You know, not all of us can go right. you know, watch young children ride horse, wild horses all around Mongolia. Well, a lot of people are but... still a little bit freaked out to travel too, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents. Listen, think... we're we're not doing that on the show, Tammy, anymore. We're not thinking of. We're not just caveating things with saying, "Well, a lot. Some people suffer more." You know. Oh we're my just, god. We're just thinking about the winners. That's what in you were life. just talking about. And no, I'm not talking life. about privilege. I'm just so... talking about people don't want to travel because they're like freaked out. <laughs> yeah, they're out. called cowards. The seventy-five year the seventy-five year olds who are going to Mongolia are the winners in life. That's my only point. You know. But Andy, that sounds cool. All right. Let's, uh, <laughs> you know, enough family stuff. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about back. this. Let's, um, okay, Andy, I want to know your take on this. Did you watch this Manti Teo documentary? Yeah, I didn't even know it came out. Um, and then, you know, some listeners are actually like, hey, did you all watch this documentary? And um, it was just like this. I watched it like 12 in the morning feeding the kid. And it was very, very useful to like pass the time when you're like brain dead, you know? The doc, yeah, the doc. I I remember very. I'm kind of surprised that people don't remember the story. Like looking at some of the comments or looking at some of the online commentary. Me too, like me I too. very clearly remember like where I was when I read the story. Like the room in my apartment in 2013. Oh, wow. uh, I, I don't even know. I was too. Yeah, yeah it was this huge. Story. When the Deadspin story came out, you remember the Deadspin story came out. I think that was <laughs> it. Was like a milestone of something of like the internet or Deadspin or, um, you know, that was definitely when catfishing. It yeah. was the biggest became yeah. the term. Right? It was the biggest story. I I think like for context, it's like the biggest. All right. So for those who don't know still, right, which I imagine is some of our listeners. For sure. Um, I'll just sum it up quickly and then yeah. ask you, um, which is just that Manti Teo is a football player who was from like the North Shore of Hawaii is from a very small insular community there of like basically like Polynesian, right? Samoan mm-hmm. people who entire family was based uh you know, the culture is centered around football um, and also Mormonism, Church of Latter-day Saints. Mandai Teo wants to go to Southern California, USC to play football, which makes total sense because there's all these like sort of Pacific Islander dudes who play at SC. Also, it's LA, you know, but somehow like he's and this is like sort of the first. I thought this documentary was great, by the way, and it's it's part of a series called Untold which is like kind of like Netflix's uh, 30 for 30. sports documentary series, right? And so, um, and, you know, they've done two good ones. Like uh, the last two I think they've done are good. I haven't seen the other one, so I don't know if they're good, but I saw I've the one. I've seen the Malice on. at the Palace What was one. the other one that you showed? Was, was the Malice in the Palace one good? 
It was, you know, it was like produced by Jermaine O'Neal, so it was very like pro. Like the Pacers were about to right, win the title right. until they. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> it was about it was about um, a, a big brawl that happened in Detroit in two thousand four. Yeah, like, and we were going to beat NBA. the Pistons. We were going to win that game. This is all like, like championship revisionism. Like all no, of these documentaries. Well, the, the Pacers were really good that year. To be fair, so Manti Teo uh, ends up at Notre Dame, becomes a big star there, right? And um, you know, it turns out that like he's being catfished by somebody who named somebody uh Naya. You know, that he knows from back in the name day who um and this is like uh I, I forget what the connection to them is, but it's something with like, you know, the sort of football I don't I think they only knew each other through Facebook. Right. They, they knew each other through Facebook. Yeah. It's like Polynesian like, community football, They knew like so. a cousin or something like Maybe, that. Maybe, right? yeah. And so, um, you know, it turns out that this person who was named Renaya at the time, who is now Naya, right, um, was sort of, I don't know, it's one of the interesting things about the documentary where it's like sort of like where, where she describes it as like going through the process of becoming trans, right, or sort of realizing that, and that she's acting out this, uh, yeah. acting her sort of self out while being Renaya at the time, right? And saying like, okay, uh, I'm doing this as part of my, and you know, a lot of people online are just like, look, you can go through that process without like sort of destroying somebody's life. And then some people are, I don't know. I actually, that's the comment I see the most. Maybe that's just the one that I agree with the most, which is just <laughs> like, yeah, look. I, you know. Did you feel like that's how she came off in the doc though? I don't. She did, yeah. I Came really think one. she did, yeah. As to the like, point where where she put out a very long statement on Instagram. Oh, really? Oh. And I actually I believe her, right? Where she said that she actually there are parts of the interview that weren't in the documentary that where she was much more contrite and apologetic. Yeah, that was um, my assumption, also. Yeah, yeah. and that now. the filmmakers didn't put it in. Now, my argument would be it's a documentary and they have no responsibility to put it in. And also, right. you know, like um, who knows whether you feel that way or not, or who knows if you're like, like you sort of apologizing is not really the point of this documentary. You know what I mean? Right. Like, so it doesn't really matter. Like they're not your PR team. They don't have to make you they don't have to like they can present you however they want because you sat down for the interview as long as they're presenting you truthfully. Which they are, I think, you know. Um, but uh, she did. Yeah, so it's this okay. big thing. I think most people at this point will know about. It. So, Andy, what what did you think about this documentary? Um, I thought it was really fascinating the way that, especially, I thought. Well, what I what I personally found most interesting was the second half when you bring in the two journalists, um, Jack Dickey and uh, Tim, Tim Burke, Burke who, yeah, who break the story. And how the divert like the basically the two paths of the way the story could have been told or what could have been consumed for the journalists of Deadspin, they wanted this to be at, at, like Deadspin the website, which I think you know is no longer what it used to be. Um, their whole thing was basically shit on corporate media and to make fun of ESPN and make ESPN look silly, and that 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 was kind of their goal was to show how ESPN and all these kind of related sites would just kind of parrot whatever Manti Teo had said about his girlfriend without fact checking it and it turns out they like as journalists they had failed their job but instead it became and this is kind of predictable and sad in hindsight right this sort of like big speculative story about you know his sexuality 
and is he a gay football player right. as opposed to and you know it makes sense like ESPN's not going to turn the lens on itself and say we messed up and this is our fault it wasn't really ESPN either it was, it was like, SI right it was everybody you know yeah, it was right, like, exactly even like the New York Times was publishing this stuff mm-hmm, right? right um like nobody had really gone yeah. back and seen and look in people's defense right um when nine other publications say this person's girlfriend is dead yeah um like like what are you gonna do like you're gonna call him up and like you're gonna have a fact checker call up and be like is your girlfriend really dead you know like that's not really like like part of the norms of like like that would be like a very 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 strange fact i mean tammy you're the you were the you have you are you are the fact checker amongst us right or the former fact checker amongst (laughs) us that's not something you would ask right you wouldn't be like, is she really dead? I mean, really you wouldn't dead? ask them, but you would Google her name and you would right, try to right, figure out right. some details about the death, probably. Right, right. Which seems like maybe they a lot of people didn't even do that. Right, yeah. Right. I, you know, the conversation I had with, with my wife was like, you know, part of the documentary is they try to do FaceTime and Naya kept saying like, oh, the technology is yeah. not working. I'm not logging on. And we're like, we were FaceTiming in 2006, 2007. So I think... The documentary is trying to, or a lot of the people in the documentary are saying it was a different time back then. 2012 is 2011 is so long ago. Who would think to Google, you know, if his girlfriend is actually a real person? But I don't know. I feel like that's a little bit naive. Like, like even before that, people were like, you could expect to do FaceTime at least once, you know, and not and not just say this is brand new technology and who could expect to. Yeah ever connect and talk in real in real time before and so i feel like even googling if a person is alive we shouldn't have such low standards that um you know and say like well in 2011 who thought to ever google if someone's alive well that's know? why i actually didn't like the second half because i thought it was really silly the way that they presented the journalists as these like okay. incredible investigators who like yeah, used yeah, all yeah. this new technology and basically he was like copying and pasting images from google into a google doc Right. But yeah, they kept showing like the guy like with all these screens, like it's a fucking hacker room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, okay, I'll defend them and say that, um, and not just because I know both of them. Well, I don't. I've never met Tim Burke, but I've I know Jack, um, and obviously, I, you know, friend of the show Tommy Craggs was the editor yeah. in chief of Deadspin uh, yeah. at the time. Um, but no, I mean, I thought they did a great job reporting that i mean you know i don't know that's like the biggest yeah i'm not casting biggest, aspersions on the biggest... reporting but i think the way oh, it's but present... you were you were <laughs> no because the way they are saying it was like he i was laughing at it because they were like oh he was using all these new tools and then the right, way they right. showed it in the doc was like oh, yeah. very well that part was funny. little where they were like that's what oh, i'm he saying i'm not the saying they didn't collective. do a good job or whatever but i just think like right. the, it, the like the dramatization element some of it was a bit like funny right but didn't say like the hack there he was part of the hacker collective anonymous and then you're like and then his and then the next shot that that was a very funny meme it's on like hilarious anyway. where they're like but no i mean they seem anonymous and then they show him job. googling Lene kakua <laughs> exactly that's right. what i'm saying which is what yeah. every journalist would do right and so like sure but like that was a great i don't know like that story was the biggest i still think it's the biggest scoop that online journalism whatever that means right sort of online independent <laughs> journalism yeah like that era of of blogs everything like that it's clearly the biggest story that that was ever produced out of that out of that entire era which you know is somewhat like um telling on itself right like the sort of totally. things that people are able to do because of resources or whatever but of course that's the biggest story i mean it was the biggest story in the country for for weeks right to the point where every yeah. single talk show just 
talked about it. Now, the person who like I think comes across the worst in this documentary in terms of the media is Katie Couric, you know, and I actually still remember that where she just like straight up in front of his parents. It's just like, are you gay? Right. And he's just like, what? You know, like I like I'm a, I'm the victim here. <laughs> you know? right. Like, um, I don't know. It was an interesting thing. Um, like, Tammy, what do you think of the documentary outside of um the the way they handled that one <laughs> the thing. funny depiction of the journalist i thought it was really well done i kept like ask because i often talk to my screen when i'm watching and i would like keep <laughs> asking these questions and they would be immediately answered by the doc which is to say like i think it was really well edited like the sequence and every all the information provided i obviously don't follow sports as closely as you guys but i too remember most of this stuff in this yeah. because it was such a big deal that it bled over into people's lives like mine um yeah. i think one of the interesting things for me too was like I guess the way that he felt that he had to defend himself, not only against, you know, these suspicions around his sexuality, but also just his like sort of basic intelligence and competence as a human being and a kind of how humiliating that was, you know, as like a college athlete. Um, I think the religion aspect too is kind right. of, yeah. Like I almost wanted more of that in the documentary because that clearly sure. was a big part of like the sort of gullibility naivete, the sort of formation of his like, yeah, just like relationship and sexual habits. Or even a lot of the incredul- incredulity, incredulity yeah. uh, was like, how could you have call your girlfriend without ever meeting her? Like, aren't you supposed to like have sex? Exactly. And I think for him, uh, I assume, right, as a really devout Mormon, he was trying to be chaste or, you know, for, for at least, you know, through college or whatever. So for him, it, they got into a little bit in the documentary, like he, as a college athlete who's 99% of his time was devoted to football. Totally. This was actually like, uh, it, like they're they're like full time employees of the university, so they actually right, just want right. like, exactly a very casual, passive, not passive, but you know, like not not fully like taking up all your time kind of relationship. Right, and his whole life has been that way, you know. Yeah, I mean that they. I thought that the documentary was really sort of well paced in the way that Tim in the way that you talk yeah. about, where like little things were very intentionally placed in ways that sort of give liked his character in the totally. way that I actually, you know, I was just like, wow, they did a good job. Like it's at the really beginning yeah. when he wants to go to USC and, you know, he just like runs into some random dude, I basically, know. right? Like a chaplain or something. Yeah. And he's like, and the chaplain who, by the way, just, you know, in retrospect, she's like, what are you doing, dude? You know, know. You're, and the, the chaplain's like, God wants you to go to Notre Dame. And you're like, God doesn't give a shit where this fucking kid goes to college. But also, what are you doing? You're like invoking right. God to get this guy to go to the, your favorite football team you might you like maybe it's bad for him it clear like yeah. instead of going to la he has to go to south bend indiana <laughs> and like hang out with pete Buttigieg. <laughs> you know, like, like, <laughs> and like and like play for this like tradition or whatever that he has in this catholic school right you know yeah. as like a mormon like all this stuff that like and at SC, he has this whole support system of players who are like, you know, like also Pacific Islanders who have been there before, mm-hmm. many of whom are also Mormon. It's just yeah. like, it's like wild. But then he's just like, okay. You know, he's right. like, yeah, let's yeah. do it. Let's go to Notre Dame. And so then you get this sense like, all right, this is like a very, very impressionable kid, right. you know? Yeah. And he's grown up in this tiny community on the North Shore his entire life has just been dedicated to football. And once he gets to college, his entire life is dedicated to football. Of course it makes sense. I mean, we've all met people like this. We probably met them in college where you're just like, where did you grow up, bro? You know, (laughs) how do you not know all this stuff? Um, And he's just like this sweet, 
it's person, heartbreaking. You know? Um, and yeah. he is sort of, uh, defamed in this kind of way. All right. Well, I have, I'll ask a $10,000 question, right? Just, do you think that this had anything to do, his treatment had anything to do with his race? Yeah. What do you mean by treatment? The media's treatment? Yeah. Like just yeah. kind of the way that the, yeah. and I'm not talking about dead spin here. I don't know where like sort of this, maybe he was treated a little bit worse. I actually don't know how much of it has to do with race. Honestly, I just thought that like, you know, like it's like those types of things where you're just like, okay, he's probably treated a little bit worse, you know, but it's clearly not the, like, it's hard to quantify how much or, or even why outside of the fact that like, he's probably just going to be treated worse anyway <laughs> in all situations yeah, I think where it's exactly. bad for him, you know, where it's like, all right, like, you know, if he was like some like, uh, perfect, you know, white dude, then maybe this isn't even a huge story, but you know, um, maybe it's like something like, Oh, who is this weird guy? His name is Manti, you know, like he's from Hawaii. He looks this way, but I don't know. I don't think it had well, too much this, to do with it. This is the one question I had. I'm not a college or any football fan. So I only learned about him through the story, but you know, the presentation is like, I assume like the reason it was a big deal was because everyone had heard the girlfriend story prior to the Desmond story. Um, as someone who doesn't follow, I guess, Jay, like, did you feel like it really was this, he really was like the one or two college football players that everyone was paying attention to that season? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, he was the biggest, he, he and Johnny Manziel were the biggest stars in college okay. football that year. And I mean, Manti Teo, because he, I, I think that like, Here's my take on it. I think that his race does have a little bit to do with it, but I think it has actually more to do with the fact that he plays at Notre Dame, you know, yeah. and everybody hates Notre Dame, you know, <laughs> no, I'm serious, you know, and it's like, if you play for Notre Dame, then, uh, and you, anything bad happens to you, like every other football college fan base is, it's like Duke. You yeah, know? that's what I was going to say. But I actually, Jay, I thought you were going to say a different question, which is like, was Manti in on this at all? Which is like, oh, no, I don't think I don't believe that. You, yeah, all. that was speculation at the time. But I yeah, think the documentary. I still like I was on Twitter and I saw all these people being like, he was totally on, in right. on. Oh, no, still, no. Still like today. So the, the narrative back at the time, right, was basically and this is how like sort of the Desmond story was essentially saying that, look, the reason why this matters is because he did gain a lot of plaudits from this story. And like, you know, there was a right. lot of ways in which he benefited right from the story. Um, now, in retrospect, and I did, look, this is no shade on Deadspin at all. Did he really benefit that much from it? I think he benefited a little bit from it, you know, like, uh, does that mean that he was in on it and making it up, you know, and milking it? Like, no, he really thought his girlfriend was dead, you know, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, and so, like, of course, it was going to affect him emotionally. Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time as his grandmother, like, he was dealing with all right. this craziness. Yeah. That... Just, like, put yourself in his shoes. It's insane to think about processing that. And then you have, like, a game every single week or every other week Yeah. Um, in front of the whole world. It's, like, I can't imagine ever dealing with that, much less as a teenager, you know? I feel like they let off, in that respect, I actually think they let Notre Dame off really easily. Like, in a way, because it should be a sort of, like, systemic indictment, right? You feel like right. Notre Dame was like playing it up because something else well, I was reading was saying like, you know, Notre Dame has is like a school of mythologies, uh, like Rudy and all that stuff. And and they almost kind of advertise like, well, if Notre Dame wins, it's because like there's this almost like supernatural force exactly. carrying Notre Dame to the title. So if Manti Teo, if, if they had won that season or if the team was successful that season, this was like, you know, some heavenly 
figure watching right right and that is how they it's right well the whole religiosity aspect i mean i think so obviously that comes through in the film and you do feel like okay there's like a critique of notre dame being that shit crazy but Mm. also then because they had the athletics the retired athletics director right like on screen so much basically like talking about how they were trying to take care of him and doing all this stuff for him i I felt like it was kind of yeah just overplaying that's that's sort of good they were yeah, that's the thing with, uh, you know, the only other <clears throat> Netflix stock from this Netflix series untold. The other thing is, you know, it seems like for all these documentaries to get the participation of the people involved and right. they almost are like sure. producers sometimes. So, um, you know, this is obviously very sympathetic to Manti and maybe that wasn't an issue. But I think to get these documentaries off the ground, um, they might have to like take the perspective of the participants. Right. Um, well, definitely. I mean, like, you know, they all the footage that they use in that film is from Notre Dame. Notre right. Dame also uh-huh. owns its own NBC broadcast. Right. And they use a yeah. lot of uh, footage behind the scenes stuff from like whatever, like Notre Dame promotional right. materials or TV or totally. whatever. And, um, you know, that all that stuff would be expensive or even inaccessible. Uh, but I don't think that they, I don't actually think that they sort of went overboard with making Notre Dame look good in that documentary. Really? Honestly. Okay. Yeah. Because like, I, I actually think like they, like the, I don't think I wasn't bothered by the athletic director. Yeah, I just think I mean, I think they were also profiting off of his misery in in some regard. Right. So, yeah, they were part of that kind of machinery around it. Yeah, it's interesting to think about because it's like, all right, well, here you have this guy like uh, Tammy, like you were saying, it it was sort of like this other like we have like because Notre Dame was so bad before Manti Teo got there. Right. And then they're like, oh, "Oh, we have this like god's warrior from hawaii he's like this <laughs> awesome dude with tattoos right and yeah. um and he uh all, all of our fans are gonna have lays uh and swing them in the <laughs> so crowd exoticizing. yeah so you think overall the scandal it seemed like it affected his draw, draft status so you feel like that might have been unrelated yeah. else, though no it did affect his draft status okay. but like i mean you the biggest it's... thing that it did and i think we should end on this is that like it clearly destroyed him as a human for a very very long time which i assume would translate into a worse career equals worse you know career earnings and opportunities that's definitely what the doc pointed to right Right. yeah yeah. maybe that's not necessarily the case from a purely like you know like a pure like on-field analysis right he did pretty well i gotta say for like who he was i think but I do think he probably would have been much better if this wasn't over. His right. head, yeah. If he had you know? full confidence in who right, he was as right. a human being. But the end, the the sort of gem of this documentary, and you know, is the end of the doc where he starts talking about. Um, he basically gives like a locker room speech, you know, and he sort of talks about how difficult it is for him to trust people. Yeah, and how he finds any inspiration, you know, and. Uh, I don't know. I found it to be extremely moving because, mm. you know, like he he talks about it's just like this moment where he's like, like there are kids who come up to him and he wants to like be inspirational to them. And, you know, they say, oh, I'm a big fan of you. But then he has to think about all the times when people yeah. took photos with him and they said, I'm a big fan of you. But then he finds out that they're just like making fun of making him, which of course him. was his life. Like there's no question that yeah. was his life, you know? And that sucks, man. Like, yeah. like you can talk about, oh, well, he made money as an NFL player and blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't, tra- he made $10 million. I would not, tra- like, I would not trade that for $10 million 
any like ever you know where you can't trust anybody and the entire world is making fun of you it's not worth you know like it's like a million dollars is kind of a lot of money i know no it really isn't you would you would never do that like have the entire world make fun of you for like your like for half of your life for 10 million dollars like what are you gonna do 10 million dollars you know i wonder yeah i wonder if his life will be different after the documentary um, oh for sure 100 percent. yeah i feel like he's having a monica lewinsky moment you know <laughs> i think better than monica yeah. lewinsky in Mon- a lot yeah. of ways. i don't know the re- i feel like monica lewinsky has had this wonderful sort of recovery recently, she, yeah. which is nice here um, is here is my prediction that for one of the first four games of the notre dame season they're gonna have manti teo come back Oh my God. (laughs) They're going to pass out the lays and they're going to have like this giant hero's welcome for him. And everyone in the country is going to be behind it because it's documentary. You know, like, I mean, it was like a top, it's like a huge hit, this documentary. That would be amazing propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's good for him, you know, because I just can't imagine going through that specific part of it where, like, you cannot trust anybody and you are rightfully assuming that every single person is lying to you to make fun of you later. Like that just sucks. Like that I sucks. just, it's just like hell, you know? Okay. Well let's move on here. Right. And, uh, we have a lot to talk about. Um, so Andy, what can you describe to me what this, well, first of all, like, so there's been this huge controversy around the American historical society associations, <laughs> uh, which is something that I didn't know. I knew existed in the abstract, but I was like, had never had one thought about, right? But I assure you feel differently about that as a historian. Um, Can you describe what is happening and like what the actual controversy is? Because this seems to be a big deal. Yeah. So the AHA is the biggest organization for historians in the US. They run the biggest journal called the AHR, American Historical Review, and they have the big annual conference that, you know, you don't have to go to, but everyone knows the dates and the location of. Um, so I assume like every industry has their version of the the giant biggest organization. And as part of it, they have this rotating president role, which I think is like every three years, it's a different person. And they're just a professor somewhere, a prominent professor at some university. Um, and I guess as part of the role that president's supposed to just kind of have a monthly column on just like what they think is going on with historians uh, or some historical topic they wanted to, uh, you know, talk about. And so this last month or last week, last few weeks was uh james sweet is a historian at university of wisconsin i don't know him um, but he seems like very you know accomplished and established um and he wrote an article i forget the title but something about identity politics it's called is history history there's something some fancy word i don't remember what the word is presentism presentism and like identity politics i don't know it's one of those words right and he's teleologies of of identity politics (laughs) something like that yeah it was definitely Um, teleology which is Danny. that's one of those words that i like pretend i know what it means but i have no clue you know like ontological just means uh yeah ontological uh, sure i don't know what that means yeah or eschatological is the fancy version um so I thought this was just going to be like a little infighting thing among historians on Twitter. And then it just kept growing and growing. And I asked you, uh, you know, had you heard about this? And this, you know, it had entered your radar. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I guess it had become big enough that if you're on Twitter. Well, and the other thing is, before getting to the article, there was such a backlash to the article that um, Sweet, uh, Professor Sweet issued an apology through the AHA. And then the AHA locked their Twitter account because I guess they were getting, um, I don't know. That, <laughs> yeah, well, that's when much. it became a big story, right? And it wasn't yeah, a spat right. among historians yeah. was when they, when first Sweet 
Tubbis's bizarre apology, right? I found it bizarre, right? Where it was just so over the top, right? And it felt so like, oh, like, Tammy, what was the last line of it? I'm listening and learning or something like that. <laughs> it's like what a CEO says when they mess yeah, up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was like, or like when a professional athlete, you know, like does something horrific, you know, like, like drops like a racial slur or something like that. And they're like, that's, I, this is not who I am. <laughs> right. right, right, right. Yeah. I'm listening, I'm listening and learning, oh, you know, or just like, it's like the, if you, if you have to type, I'm listening and learning into an apology, like it's, yeah. you know, it's over. And it'd be so, funny if the um, HA did the Instagram six, uh, you know, six panel apology with, uh, like wallpaper in the background. I know. Well, instead they, so that's when everybody goes crazy, right? And this is where I'm just like, who is running the AHA's PR? Because like the first thing is that they shouldn't have had him apologize, right? Unless he really meant to apologize. But if he meant to apologize, he shouldn't have apologized like that, where it's so yeah. over the top. Yeah. And then locking their Twitter account is like, you're just like, oh my God. That was you weird. Know, like, yeah, like, come on. like. But they know, also tweeted something it like, we're being attacked by trolls who are uninterested in civil discourse. This is appalling oh, really? or something like that. That's yeah. And I was like, uh, I wonder who wrote that. You know, like, was it? Um, it couldn't have been like their 21 year old intern who wrote that. You know, what no, I mean? no, 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 no. Like this director. is like Christ. This is like Olivia Pope, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Of> history. Um, <laughs> you know, that anyways. would be the most boring version of uh, episode no. of Scandal no ever. Okay, so the the uh, his argument is something I want to look into a little bit, right? Be but I want to look a little bit more into some of the other stuff. But you know, like what is presentism, right? Because presentism is basically what this thing is based around yeah and so he's basically making this uh you know this is almost like the first thing you would learn in a history class like sh you know when you study history should we study history on its own terms in terms of like if you study the 1700s do you just care about what did they think in their own time how did they make sense of the world did they believe you know the the sun revolved around the earth etc or do we mine the 1700s for stuff that is useful for us to make sense of the present Namely, like, you know, do we look for, um, like, the origins of racism today in the slave system of the 1700s? Do we look at patriarchy and sexism and all that stuff today in terms of and locating its origins in, like, white supremacy in the 1700s? Or, uh, so that kind of right. dichotomy. And the article... And so, like, Sweet comes off as basically saying... And he could have probably... I think his point was perhaps more subtle, but he comes off perhaps, as he says in his apology, in order to like spark a debate, a little bit forceful in saying that we shouldn't care about, not that we shouldn't care about, but that if historians become too obsessed with what everyone else cares about in terms of like sociologists, journalists, et cetera, like contemporary debates about sexism, racism, capitalism, then what are historians, what, what makes us special? Right. Yeah, why, why wouldn't you just be a sociologist at that right, point? Exactly. Right. So if yeah. our or specialty an activist. is, right. if we're going to write about the 1600s, we can talk about the 1600s in a way that is more sophisticated. We have, we just know more about what life was like back then. Um, we can provide some depth. Um, and then I think, you know, what probably triggered a lot of responses, he brings up the example of the 1619 project. Um, and he put the word identity politics in the title. I actually right. think that's 90% of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was like, well, you're not even really talking about identity politics. Exactly. You know, whoever wrote this apology and tweet blocked Twitter account probably should have just cut that word from the title and nothing would, there would be no problem. Know. To it, you know? But then, you know, I mean. Well, and he had that weird tour guide example. I know. This is, this is the this is the part I think people were offended by, which is he was in, um, 
Elmina uh, Castle Ghana. in Ghana, Ghana, which is like a stop on the Atlantic slave trade. Yeah. Okay. And then he talked, he, and he is himself a, I don't know his work fully, but he is a historian of like Africa, African diaspora, right. probably the slave trade as well. Um, he's a white guy. He just should be, you know, uh, for, for listeners. Um, yeah, he, he's very, he looks very white. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he has an anecdote of how black Americans taking this tour of the slave trade brought with them a copy of the 1619 project and he does it's just this anecdote he doesn't even comment on he just kind of throws it in there but i think it came off to people as being very ethnographic like this white observer of the of like black americans like passing judgment on their right inability right. to do history unlike him right his um, argument in that was that like he because andy I'm, I'm only interrupting yeah, you yeah, say yeah. that he does give some provide some commentary on it which is essentially yeah. that like there is uh, basically Elmina Castle's tour has become like centered around African Americans. Right. And that, um, that the 1619 project being there is like sort of this like testament to that. Right. But in reality, only 1%, less than 1% of the people who passed through Elmina Castle went to North America. You know, everyone else went to the Caribbean or Brazil and that in reality, this is not an African American place, right. Or a part, part of African American history, really. Right. It's more right. of a place of like Brazil history, and that um, that that sort of presentism, right, where everything, the demands of sort of the present and and the way in which these things are processed actually erase that part of that history. And which I honestly think feels a little pedantic, right? You know, like, and that maybe that's what people are are um, objecting about. Now, I think he's probably right in the main, right? But like, like it's well, okay also- for African Americans to see any. Sl- uh, slave Atlantic slave trade outpost and feel feel like a connection to it I mean you know like 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 they, what are they gonna do they're like oh the, well you know this one just went to Brazil so you know like who cares right, right, right. <laughs> like, it's like 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 that's where well, it's just like come also, on dude like you're being kind of pedantic here you know but that's um, true but I think he was uh, maybe at this part was also incendiary because he was saying that that kind of tourism also elides the fact that there were African civilizations that were slave right. doing their own slave right. trade and that there was like complicity and that's not interrogated. And anyway, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit facile the way. He I, presents I, it. I think, I mean, I, I, I make similar points all the time in these discussions where like, this shouldn't be a morality story of yeah. right. just white Americans. It's international, it's global and it's, there's no good or bad. Um, there are good and bad guys, but it's not about, um, you know, there's like the old argument, like slavery produced racism, racism didn't produce slavery, right? Um, right. That slavery happens and a lot of people participate in it, inclu- and including like white slaves and Indian slaves also. Um, and that it's a bit simplistic to use 21st century categories of, right. you know, right, evil right, white right, people, right, right. good black people, et cetera. Um, and yeah, I think there's maybe it was just something about the presentation that came off as very like condescending. Um or potentially, like it was weird because when I read reread the article, he throws in that anecdote about sixteen nineteen and just kind of leaves it hanging in midair. Yeah. And I wonder if he thought like his point was obvious. It was just like some rhetorical, you know, some anecdote he throws in there. But I think a lot of people, it was like so under under contextualized that people just mm-hmm. kind of ran with it as like another white guy telling black people right. They well, can't and that because he's talking there about like this idea of an overabundance of history, right? Which is something we talked about on the show. A lot, right? Yeah. Which is one of my main takes, which is just that there's way too much history <laughs> going on, right? And that too many people, like, we there's use history journalism. to explain. Well, we use history <laughs> to explain everything, right? And that's sort of his argument, right? Which, and so obviously I was a bit sympathetic to this argument. Yeah. 
And um, and I think that he was making like in, at the core, like, you know, what he was saying is basically like, look, a historian would look at Elmina Castle and say, like, you know, they would not do what the tour guide said, did, which is say that, you know, the Ghanaians didn't even know where the people were going. They didn't realize that this was going to be the slave trade. And he was like, well, that's just fundamentally not true. You know, right. like it's just not true. And obviously the reasons why this tour guide is saying this, and this is where it just, we're just like, all right, dude, you got to calm down a little bit. You know, it's like a tour guide, right? Like, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, is because like of the demands of the present, that like, you know, and he doesn't use the word woke or anything like this. This guy actually seems to be quite, you know, I bet he's like, I bet he's super liberal in real life, super yeah. liberal guy. Um, and that historians should be pointing out those distinctions, right? And if you don't want to point out those distinctions and you want to do stuff like make a Hollywood movie, he like sort of points out this new movie uh, that is coming out that like is seems to be completely ahistorical, right? Um, that that you should make movies, right? Or that you should be an activist and you shouldn't be a historian. And that's where it's like, and then he, the reason why people are mad, I think, and this is where I really understand why people are mad, is that when you say things like that, when you say identity politics produces bad history, right? You are basically saying that every single person who's not white in your field is, you know, like has their brain rotted by identity politics and their work should be, should be, up for scrutiny now i don't think if you asked him that he would say that and he would probably point out 10 scholars that aren't white that he really admires right but like that's just the way it comes across man you know and i i've had that happen where like you know people who are friends of mine who are white just like oh you know they paint with a little bit too broad of a brush when talking about like quote unquote identity politics journalism and like in my head i just think you know what fuck you you know, like <laughs> seriously, like, fuck you, dude. Yeah. Cause you're also talking about me that way. I know. And like, um, you know, like, like I'm oh, just, back, yeah. I'm just quietly offended and I'm just going to present you for the rest of, right. of like my life, you know, cause that's, that's the way I roll. And yeah. so like, that's just like, you know, I don't know, like that's, <laughs> It seems like that's like that's sort of the core here, right? Um, but I don't know. Like, what do you think about it, Andy? Like, we like how are you sort of how did you process all of this, right? Yeah, I, I think there's one other angle here, um, which is that again, he I think he has this very stark dichotomy between present versus uh, I don't know real history, quote unquote, um, that he probably doesn't really intellectually believe in, but for polemic purposes, he creates this dichotomy between there's real history and there's like fake history that these presentist people are doing. And I think a lot of the anger I saw on Twitter were younger historians. A lot of them may be either grad students or in postdocs, um, or maybe have not been able to get a tenure track job or really struggled to find a tenure track job. And they're really feeling like the industry is collapsing around them. And here's this guy um, retreating even further into the ivory tower and um, making you know, like school, like bookish arguments about, you know, we should be, be doing like, we should be writing more about the Renaissance, you know, while, right. Um, and you know, no one really knows the solution about what to do. And that's kind of the issue. Like everyone's just kind of like the industry is collapsing. We got to do something about it. We don't know what we should do about it, but we certainly know that the way to win over, you know, more funding, more positions in academia is not to, um, shame people who talk about the present. Yeah, so I don't know. I saw I saw a lot of that reaction, uh, which I'm sympathetic to. And you know, I talked to I had a conversation with I think I can mention this like Danny, you know, friend of the show, Danny Bessner, who himself has kind of taken on the AHA in the past. And 
Um, you know, I think everyone recognizes like the AHA is not a union. You know, it is not like an advocacy group. Um, it's just a professional organization. I don't know if journalism has something, if you actually have a structure where like, uh, like and the no, we don't have like a president of journalism, right? You know? People like fight New York Times and be like, you know, pay us better or you know, give us more jobs. Like, well, the, I mean, the New York Times has its own guild, its own union, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, within yeah, the right. institution itself. So, like, the AHA doesn't have the power to tell, um, you know, the schools in the top one hundred U.S. news to like give two more jobs to historians. Um, but at the same time you know, there's a feeling like they're not doing anything. They're not even acknowledging what's going on. Instead, there's this talk of this stuff called Alt-Ac, Alternative Academia, where they spend their time telling grad students you should, um, you know, do these other things that are not tenure-track jobs. And Got it. There have been some debates, I remember, some harsh discussions among people I know, where, you know, on the one hand, someone could say like, hey, I didn't get a tenure-track job. That's okay. I decided to do this instead. And people are really offended. Right, because they're like, you're telling me I can't do what I set out to do. You know, I know, I dream. know. Yeah, and you know, these are two people I know in real life, and they would just kind of like, you know, really fight it out. And it's it's not necessarily about the other person; it's really about you know, each of us was kind of reckoning with our own expectations of what we were do, what we what we set out to do when we entered grad school in our twenties, and mm. what is the reality of the market and all that. So, I think a lot of it is. I don't want to say like there's no one to blame. I think a lot of it is obviously personal, um, not necessarily about the column, but the column kind of triggers certain, his struck a nerve with a lot of people. Yeah. Right, right, right. Like. It's like, it's like, I don't know. I mean, like if there's like a president of journalism's, you know, and like he was like, you know, uh, basically what this comes down to is like economic precarity within, within fields. Right. And then um, a diversification over the past 10 years of fields, right? And the sense that like the people who are brought in as to be part of like the diversification of the field um, are not as serious as the old people who are right. there. Right. And that like yeah. and like that sucks. And that's what I was talking about before, which is right. just like if you're not like a white dude or, you know, and, and um, you hear some of these people talk in the way that they do about like, you know, like they they use very coded language. Right. But they say essentially stuff like, oh, well standards right or something like that they right. sort of like wave at stuff that they don't even really believe in right but they also like certainly don't adhere to right um and they talk about like oh well this type of work like identity type of work or whatever right like look these people are not actually thinking about anything in a lot of terms and now i actually don't think this is true of james sweet which is why like i feel like maybe you know this was like so weird mm -hmm. but there are people like this right who like sort of roll their eyes at anything right. that has anything yeah. to do with anything like that they, they call it trendy and stuff like that too you know right right yeah. or it's like joyce carol Oates, like saying like oh well you know no white authors right. male authors can, can be published. published anymore because all these like <laughs> asians writing about like you know their lunch boxes or something like that right <laughs> and like um and that that is like you can't if you're if you're saying that type of stuff right you can't just sort of say well i don't mean you you know right because like every single person in their head, because, you know, they're not white and they've, you know, dealt with this type of stuff their entire life is going to be like, no, if I'm not around, you are talking about me, motherfucker, you know, <laughs> right? Like you're just saying that because I'm here. Right? right. And so like, I don't know, like for James Sweet to not know that, you know, is kind of like 
you know, as the kids say, sauce or something, you know, or just like, <laughs> listen, dude, how do you not know this? You know? And you're, uh, but it's at just, the same time, the yeah. substance of what he said, I kind of agree with most of it. I know, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. And it was like, who, I, I don't, I'm a historian. I don't even read this column, you know, like who did he think was going to read this and, and get offended by it? Um, and yeah, you know, and once the account got locked and it became a sort of classic cancellation story, like Matt Iglesias started chiming in, Richard Spencer chimed in. So Jesus, really? It's now become oh like, of course, you know, we don't like, yeah, I don't know. I I guess it's like James Sweet's like learning moment about like how the internet works and how cancel culture works. Yeah, well, know. he's like learning he said, and listening. He's listening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's listening. Um, yeah, no, I mean, like again, like intellectually, I totally see where he's coming from. And that's yeah, I would part, agree you know? with him mostly intellectually. We're just like, all right, look, yeah, you know, like we we do have this sort of car- comic book version of history, you know, um, at at times, and journalists. Are probably doing too much history right now, yeah, you know. I think that's right. And um, journalists are doing too much history. Journalists are doing way too much history. <laughs> and also, like, I generally agree that, like, we that there is. I don't like when pe- when it's reverse engineered, right? Like, I didn't like that. Like, my Ulysses class in college, for example, was right. just about like, um, right, right. You know, like whatever political idea within within Joyce, right? And I didn't learn anything about Joyce and I didn't we didn't talk about Oh really the book really at all. You know, we wow. just talked about like the social modern ramifications, which obviously just exist to prove one idea, which is like one group is oppressed by another group, right? Like I just like I'm not into that type of stuff personally. I don't think that it, that means it shouldn't exist, right? But I would rather just like sort of make my own conclusions and learn about the form of the book, et cetera, et cetera. But like, I just don't need to do like cultural I mean, studies. You could also about do both. It's weird that it was so lopsided. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's like a lot of the academy is like this where people come in and are specialists, right? In one type of field. Sure. Yeah. And they just do a, a type know. of reading yes, about everything. Yeah. And it's always like the same reading. And like, I, I do think that history is kind of like that, right? Like I, think like within Asian American studies, same thing, right? Like where it's like, all right, well, all these journalists are writing about Asian hate crimes, right? And uh, they're writing about history. They're writing about the Chinese Exclusion Act and everything like that. And at some point, I'm just like, what does that have to do with any of this? You know, like who gives a shit about the fucking Chinese Exclusion Act, right? And their their project is basically, oh, well, we're placing Asian American people within a history of oppression. I'm just like, listen, these people are getting beat up in the streets. Like, you know, like it doesn't really matter what happened in 1882, you know? And like, we already know all of that. And like, in some ways you're like kind of distracting from the actual thing that's happening, you know, by talking about something that happened in 1882, like who cares if we're part of like a long tradition of white supremacy or something like that? Like, like, what does that have to do with anything right now? You know? Um, um, you're, you're kind of on the other side of him then you're just, cause he would say, yeah, he would say like, let's not reduce the present to stuff that happened in the 1880s. Let's just focus on the 1880s and you're saying, let's just focus on the present. Right. 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 But as journalists, I'm saying, right. right? right. You know, so like, divisional don't labor, always have right. to make you the connections. That. Yeah. Yeah. You don't always have to make the connections. You don't have to mention not the liberation connection front also. in every single article, you know? Right. Yeah. For example, I agree. You know? Not every yeah. Asian American issue is about the Chinese exclusion act. Um, 
There are probably more recent relevant histories as well, which is another thing. Like you can stretch back a little bit, but maybe not always two hundred years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, we could at least we Vincent Chin is like you know Vincent Chin the Chinese Exclusion Act. You're like, listen, man, like you know, like I don't know what that has to do with this person who just got shot in Oakland. You know, like I mean. Like maybe you can make some connection that makes sense, but like I'm sorry, it's like basically you're doing like a little, you're making like you're just telling a story, you know, and like it's only interesting to five people, and those five people are just pretending it's interesting because they're your friend, you know. But like, 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 come on, like let's just stop doing this thing where journalists have to tell the entire backstory historically of every single thing that they write about. Like nobody cares. Think, also, like yeah. you just like Googled half the shit anyway. I know Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia. Yeah, 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 Wikipedia yeah. changed. Everything. <laughs> um, okay, let's move on. Andy, we didn't bring you on to talk about. Well, we did bring you on to his, talk about historians. We didn't bring you on to talk about Manti Teo because you know, <laughs> we would have done that if you had, yeah, you know, gone to Notre Dame or something. <laughs> <laughs> would you teach at Notre Dame? You sort of you teach at like a I Catholic teach. At, I mean, you teach at where? Yeah, you can get you can get a job, a, a good job, teaching job there. What I find weird though is, you know, this is how I feel about like the Boston Celtics, like wearing Irish on your clothes like when you're not irish that just feels like like for mate Teo, that's like a step too far like it's fine to like go to the midwest or go you to feel like he was a rice trader to find yourself i don't know it's just weird it's, it's like why is, this, too far. why is irish still your mascot you know why is why are celtics still your mascot you know? it is weird anyway so I, I would i would feel weird i would never wear Notre Dame gear you know but I it's weird but it's not weird the way that like the racist native american stuff is weird yeah yeah, it's a it is a little weird. Uh, the fighting Irish. I don't know. I hate Notre Dame, obviously. So you know, like everybody else. So I know. Um, I'll go along with anything. I hadn't thought about you know. It's weird to wear the word Irish on your shirt when you're not Irish. But <laughs> it'd be weird. It's like, what if I wore like Korean on my shirt? And I was like, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> hey, welcome. I'm not that. Korean. Yeah, I'd be like Andy. You know, welcome <laughs> to the tribe. You know? Yeah. 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 Um. Go outside and get really tan, and, you know. <laughs> start having some problematic opinions about things, and you know, buy a new car. <laughs> the, the three traits of Korean Americanism. Um, all right, so we did bring you on to talk about Taiwan, right? And and look, what what's going on there? Because yeah. I'm confused about it too. You right. know, like I'm just like, what is actually happening? Like, what is Nancy <laughs> Pelosi doing? Right. Why are people mad? Why did she go there? You know, like right. it seemed like kind of unnecessary, but obviously there's probably some reason, you know, even if we disagree with the reason, there's right. probably some reason. So just give us your like 30,000 feet in the sky, um, uh-huh. you know, on a plane that's being tracked by thousands of people right. watching on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was weird. Like I processed it basically by talking to my parents about it every day because they'd be on uh, Taiwanese YouTube watching the news, and I'm like, "Well, something to talk about, I guess." As we <laughs> wait for my kid to get off the bus, um, I don't exactly know why she went there. There's a lot of. I mean, I don't think anyone really knows. There's a lot of speculation, but she goes to visits Taiwan. She announces plans to visit Taiwan like a month ago. Biden publicly is like against it. Um, so there's speculation. Maybe she just shouldn't have told him, and she's like Biden would have been okay with it if she went uh, secretly. Um, there's speculation that maybe she won't go to Taiwan. This is part of East Asia tour. She goes to South Korea as well, and I don't know yeah. Singapore as well. Maybe somewhere else like that, um, as part of her like American democracy and East Asia tour. And then in the lead up, China. So Biden is against it. He doesn't want to rile things up with China. The Chinese government uh, condemns it. 
when she visits and it's just like a 24 hour quick whirlwind visit in Taiwan, nothing happens, right? Like military drills, Chinese press media, they don't, they're pretty silent for those 24 hours. Once she leaves, um, the Chinese government kind of ramps it back up. They issue all, all sorts of statements condemning the visit. It violates the one China policy, you know, that the claim is agreed upon, which is not really true. And they conduct all these military drills around Taiwan for the next few days. And then it stops. Um, and yeah. even last week, I believe, Ed Markey, like a lot of U.S. politicians came back to Taiwan. Or I guess U.S. politicians visit Taiwan all the time and it's not a big deal. It's just that Pelosi, by being the leader of the Senate, is potentially a, what, like third, fourth in line to be president of the House, to be president. So um, it would almost be like, it's like a minor version of Biden visiting Taiwan. Yeah, that's definitely. not okay. Right. But Ed Markey, you know, who's like a well-known politician, but is not going to be president. Um, he visited Taiwan and nothing happened. Right. Like China did not care. Um, so the speculation, the kind of hindsight speculation, if you read through the different reports is that um, this was a lot of bluster from both sides. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, China has to make a show of opposing you like high-ranking U.S. politicians visiting Taiwan, and the United States. The, the 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 weird thing was basically like, this is true. I think this is interesting. You know, among people our age and my friends who are like in Taiwan or Taiwanese Americans, people in Taiwan, they will constantly talk about how it feels weird to basically be this chess piece in the global map, geopolitical map, and read coverage about the China Taiwan impending war. Well, on the island, people are just like chill and they don't they don't think anything's going to happen. And they're like, people have been talking about a war with China for 50 years. And yeah, at this point, we're numb and inured to it. Yeah, it's and, like South Korea and North Korea. Yeah. Whatever. Like North Korea is like everyone's like they're doing missile exercise. And right. nobody. Right. Even and in the meantime, happening. my parents, who are of a different generation, they're kind of on a way different end on the, on the political spectrum as, as like. New Bloom, for instance, they're just like conservative, old-fashioned, you know, pro-China um, um, Taiwanese immigrants. They also find it very jarring living in the U.S. This, this last month, reading, watching the coverage. Um, I remember one day, you know, my mom's just checking out YouTube, checking out the news on YouTube, and she watches Sky News, which I guess is like Fox News for the U.K. And she's like, look at this. Look what they're talking about. Can Taiwan survive an invasion from China? What are they talking about? She's just like perplexed <laughs> at how... The rest of the world is talking about this. Um, so I think it was sold to the rest of the world that Pelosi visiting Taiwan could destabilize the region and lead to a war. Whereas people in Taiwan and probably in China also, um, as long as they like have decent sources sources of information, were like, eh, like this is just business as usual. We well, don't do you not think that the military exercises were at all significant? I mean, obviously, it's not the first time they've done that, but... I don't know. Yeah. So the, the reporting that Wall Street Journal thing was suggesting like the fact that they didn't do it for Markey or the fact that they did those drills for like three days and then stopped was an indication that it was pure theater. Uh, and I, I obviously it all sure. won't be caught, you know, years from now being the one who downplayed the war with, between China <laughs> sure. and Taiwan. But I do feel like in the moment, it does feel like for a lot of people, especially in Taiwan or China, in China, observing this, that nothing has really changed. A lot of this is theater on both sides and that the United States and China will play up the threat of each other over Taiwan for the sake of, I don't know, political, you know, some political gains, political capital, maybe justifying military spending. Um, 
justifying right. or first, you know, in China, the the other big kind of thing that's going to happen is um, in November, I think there's going to be a, a party Congress where Xi Jinping is going to probably get his third five-year term. Um, and that's like the, for the first time since Mao has anyone been in power mm-hmm. that long. And so part of, part of that justification for why we need Xi Jinping in power is because there's all these crises happening in China and he needs to finish the mission of reunification with Taiwan and, um, so we need stability and strong leadership and, you know, all the, all those buzzwords. So, you know, there's an argument to be made that China is also playing up the, the threat of the United States um, and, and playing up the importance of reclaiming Taiwan to justify his own, you know, staying in power. Um, I don't know, like people, you know, right. I talk to the people who are from China and who follow this stuff closely. They don't know what's going on either. Right. It's all just like back to the days of Kremlinology where people are just like trying to read between the lines of Pravda and, speculate about like sure. you know what, what are the actual motivations or incentives of, of these leaders um overall though i think the main takeaway is like the last month was a lot of bluster especially in the u.s media um uh, a lot of theater why do you think it was such a big story you know because it was really like the lead of the yeah. news for a long time that was something i didn't quite get where i was just like well i can't remember the last time that um Anything in terms of foreign policy was this central, yeah. right? Like, uh, and it's like, well, Pelosi is visiting Taiwan, and you know, like it was strange because you read the foot the the coverage of it, and it's like it's almost like the people who are writing about it like know what why it's a big deal, but the public might not, you know, right. so they don't even tell <laughs> you really. They're just like, yeah, as all of you know, it's sort of like. I was talking about college football, you know, like, and like, you know, like some of our listeners, like what's college football, (laughs) (laughs) like obviously, but, uh, but, um, I don't know why, why do you think it's such a big deal here? Like I, I'm I'm still confused by that. It's the specter of a war with China, I think of rival. It's like, you know, like in debate, it's like, and I think we can treat our China war impact. Yeah. It's like Kyle's at 95. (laughs) Um, like the speculation (laughs) is like, they don't want, nobody wants to say it. Right. Like no one wants to write in the New York times that a, a gigantic nuclear war could happen. But I think that's the, you know, it's like, I don't know. I'm sure an article about the USSR in the eighties would kind of feel the same way. It's like, we all kind of know the stakes. I think it's also because of the kind of hangover from Hong Kong stuff and the fact that right. Ukraine is happening right now and exactly. people are drawing that analogy. Totally. Um, it was also, you know, quite clear that, you know, Pelosi is going at a very interesting time given that we were pushing through this $70 billion semiconductor bill in the United States, you know, and so this as a sort of like Taiwan as the main producer of semiconductors in the world, like it's, she met with TSMC when she was there. It's a very, it's a very interesting visit. What is the bill? Are they going to make semiconductors here? Yeah. So the chips bill that just got signed by Biden um, is providing $70 billion to foreign and domestic firms to make semiconductors in the United States and strengthen like supply chain capability. I, I think it's, it's arguably like quite a just a corporate giveaway. Bernie Sanders yeah, wrote it against it, and yeah. My understanding um, of TSMC is that like it's so precise and it's so like unable to be replicated. That's why TSMC has been, you know, the the world's leader for a long time. You can't just throw money at it. It's like they've been doing this for so long, and it's the world's best. Blah blah blah. Like China's <laughs> is also that what your parents to... told you? It sounds yeah, like Taiwanese propaganda. <laughs> this is TSMC is great because. This is like a topic I'm actually interested in reading more about. And yeah. I learned about it uh, one night a few years ago, eating like oranges with my uncle when he was like in his underwear. 
telling me about, we should look up TSMC. I think that's an important company. I mean, there's a lot of companies that do similar stuff to TSMC, so I don't know how like like, singular they are, but I think they're they're a big they're a big deal. They're huge, but I just think it's no, of course, yeah. They're the biggest manufacturer in the world of semiconductors. Um, Yeah, and yeah, so like China's also trying to get their own semiconductor industry going. And my understanding is like, you know, you just you just it's not like I don't know, it's not like cars. You can't just like, you know, bring in. people and just like a team of people and tell them how to do it. You have to like do it for decades. And even then you might not be good enough. Well, it's not like the United States has no history doing it. I mean, in the nineties we made like, I think 40% of the semiconductors in the world. Yeah, no, the Taiwanese um, engineers, they were trained in the U S they're like, right. General, so I mean, instruments and Texas instruments. I totally feel like you're like being a little bit of a Taiwanese propaganda arm. No, totally fine, but, um... they're, they're from Silicon Valley. They, they brought Intel's technology back to Taiwan. Anyway, sorry. Exactly. <laughs> well, okay. But so it, here, <laughs> go ahead, Tammy. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say the point. My point is just that, like, I think Pelosi's visit also had to do with the fact that, like, a lot of semiconductor stuff is on people's minds right now. And yeah. we are always trying to shore up relationships with uh, the Taiwanese the suppliers. Semiconductors. It's like yeah. from the departed, so. you know? Where are the semiconductors? <laughs> like Jack Nicholson's super word Boston accent. Um, the other, okay, so Brian Hayo, who's, you know, been on Hugh, the show yeah. before, and Wen Lu. Hugh. Um, sorry, Brian. And yeah. Wen Liu was, uh, wrote in Tempest Magazine, right? And Brian argued, made this argument that I thought was, you know, probably true, right? And he said, aside from true uh, concerns about her legacy pre-retirement, broadly speaking, it is likely Pelosi was looking to bolster the credentials of Democrats as being tough on China ahead of the U.S. midterm. Showing support for Taiwan would be one way yeah. of trying to come across as yeah. tough on China. Now, I thought about that in terms of, you know, like uh, that dude, Tim Ryan in Ohio, sure. right? And sort of like, this idea that being a quote unquote populist, right, or being like kind of like one of the centrist Dems or like, hey, I'm the reasonable guy, right? Um, and I'm not down with all this woke shit, right, in the party, right? I'm not the right. squad, I'm not whatever, is to be anti China. Like, sort of, sh- it's like a bona, bona fide that you can um, put out there. And you see it in a lot of places, right? Now, a lot of that is that, like, uh, you know, these, People are basically saying, well, you know, my thought is that, like, I don't really have um, much of a platform that's popular, but I do know that anti-China sentiment is popular, right? And so yeah. I'm going to, like, sort of take on an anti-China pose, right? Yeah. Um, and if it's sort of become that, right? Now, yeah. Nancy Pelosi, mm-hmm. obviously, is the head of the Democrats, right? She's, like, sort of the James Sweet of the Democrats, right? Like, um <laughs> <laughs> she she is trying to set an agenda for what it's going to be right and i do think that this is probably part of it right which yeah. is just that like we're also anti-china right? yeah now sure. this is something that we thought about during the biden administration uh, biden campaign when biden started releasing like basically like sinophobic ads right, right. Yeah. and like what's going on here but biden too is you know for whatever reason has really sort of tapered off that a lot now, part of that was because Biden has tapered off everything a lot because he's just not present. <laughs> I you know, know. Right. We don't hear from him ever. I know. But, um, you know, like the sort of idea that the Democratic Party is going to become super anti-China hasn't really come into fruition yeah. outside of like Tim Ryan campaign ads, right? That yeah. none of us would watch if they weren't being like discussed by pundits on Twitter, right? Like yeah. none of us live in Ohio, unless you live in Ohio. Um, yeah. So, yeah. What, what do you think about this? Yeah, and I wonder if the reason it hasn't gone as over the top as 
we feared it back in 2020 is part of the effort of a lot of activist groups and advocacy groups at Asian American ones to kind of tell the Democratic Party to not be so demonizing. And another theory that's, or not another story out there that, you know, Pelosi is, Cali- is from California, the, uh, is her district, the Bay Area, right? And so her constituency are a lot of Asian Americans, could be Taiwanese Americans. And so she felt it was important, like part of the trip was being advertised as like, her constituents are from Asia, East Asia. And so she's going to, you know, I don't know. I don't know what like Korean Americans, if they care that Pelosi visits South Korea. But uh, I think part of it was like, she's getting in touch with, uh, I don't know, the extended diaspora, the extended kind of base of, of her voters in California. Yeah. But maybe, the, you know, that's, it's- uh, oh, I don't it's, believe that. Yeah. yeah. Well, she, I mean, but Pelosi also going back decades has been a really strong critic of China. Like this is something yeah, she like right. cares about, you know? I saw that, yeah. So for whatever yeah. reason. Right. But well, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a it, distinction instead of just like blaming COVID on Asians, right? So just drawing a kind of finer distinction yeah. between like Taiwan as the freedom loving Asian country and China as the communist country, you know, like the human rights violating communist country. So it's 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 definitely not Asian. It's not it's definitely not like a sweeping, you know, anti Asian, anti China thing the way that Tim Ryan's comes off as. Um, but I do. Th- I think you're right that there is a sort of a race to at, at the very least to prevent the Republicans from paint, from painting the Democrats as, you know, the cronies or the, you know, the sort of the pawns of China. Like the LeBron James. <laughs> you know, where they're like, you oh, know, right. woke until it <laughs> has exactly, to do with yeah. China. Oh, oh, you know? I right, yeah. the, I mean, I that's like a guys... charge of corruption that the right does to to Democrats, right? Like, basically, yeah. they're in the pocket of China and that, um, you know, they don't care. They don't actually care about human rights abuses and like racism right. and all these sorts of things because, you know, they support. Yeah. They support China. Um, yeah, I, people. I always forget about that. I think people forget about that. That basically, like Nancy Pelosi is like, the first Asian American congressperson. Well, not the first, but you know. Wait, like, that's that? weird. <laughs> no, no one says that. But like, oh, she really does represent a very Asian. Definitely yeah. constituency, you know, and she always has, right? Because I think she represents Chinatown. Yeah, in yeah, exactly. Francisco, you know? That was one of the first things we talked about was yeah. she went to Chinatown and before there was like a vaccine and people accused her of being dangerous, like, of, oh, like, yeah. Yeah. of like not taking enough precautions yeah. by actually talking to Chinese people. Right, um, right, right. But I actually, so I have a little bit of a different view on this than you guys do, which is yeah. I actually think Biden has been talking about China a fair bit, but just like in economic ways. Right. Like, he's backed off the sort of COVID fear-mongering stuff, but the entire rationale for the CHIPS Act for a lot of his Build Back Better has always been to compete with China. And I sort of think even though he came out against Pelosi's visit, that secretly he likes it. And that actually it's doing some of the work for him on these bills. Yeah, I think the theory is he just wants her to go secretly um, or or without telling him. Or or now that it was public and announced ahead of time, he had to say something. Um, I mean, yeah, but the, just the theater of that, yeah. Right, and or, then there was like one of these yeah, articles. it's like you know, like the it's like if they're like you know in the mafia or something like that, and they're being bugged, right? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, go see that guy. You know, well, I didn't tell you to see that guy, you know, but uh, winking, like yeah, don't exactly. see that guy, you know, like um, I mean, that, I've been reading this book about the mafia, and I, now all my thoughts are like that. You know, like, I also watched Casino last night, which is a great movie. <laughs> is that good? Um, I want to see that. Casino is great. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of these pieces speculated that Xi Jinping and 
Biden had a phone call where she I know that was funny in so many words basically say we're not going to start a war you know right. like now is the time for peace and stability so th- I don't know, there's, there's all these like things being leaked I guess like you know like mm-hmm. Wojnarowski style that are like um telling us that underneath the theater of all this is um things are probably not gonna escalate in the near future okay well so like it was a whole like I mean I mean, what's the takeaway from all of this then like you know is it a whole lot about nothing um, um, I don't want to say I don't want to say it's a whole lot about nothing. I think that what mm, I think the takeaway is it's interesting how the U.S. media played it up, probably disproportionately so. And uh, it's worth yeah. asking, like, why they why? did that? Mm-hmm. Like, what? It's more. It's like the the visit itself probably did increase tensions. However, you know, in, intangible those things are, but. It's more interesting, like, why is the U.S. media invested in a sort of U.S.-China confrontation story? Uh, why are they invested in... Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, cause, again, it is striking, because I remember the other day, I was like, I walked past the NPR station in Philly, and they were playing NPR, just like on the street. And I heard the story of Ed Markey going to Taiwan. I was like, wait, like, I didn't hear about that. Like, wait, in Philly, <laughs> like, outside the NPR station, they have speakers. And like, NPR. Like, That's yeah, so Race funny. Street and 7th Street. Yeah. That's nice. Um, <laughs> I know. It's like I mean, going it's... to Rockefeller Center. <laughs> Can you imagine living on that block? I would go crazy. <laughs> that is annoying. It's not a residential block. It's yeah. just, like, by the right. freeway. Um, so you can <laughs> just really do it at all. I think the media, though, it wasn't just the United States. Like, I just saw a friend who works for um, a newspaper in Colombia, and it mm-hmm. was there. They were doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the whole world, the world is watching for sure. Yeah, uh, I guess the question is like, kind of like what Jay was saying, like, but there's this sort of in between the lines innuendo that is never being said out loud, which is like, are we going to have a war between two superpowers? You know, um, over this, uh, which I think on that question, it's not we're not close. Maybe you could say like we're point zero one percent closer, but you know. Who knows? It's all it's all like back to criminology days, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's like um but that's what happens in a cold war, I guess, right? Yeah. Like with right. the press, where it's just like, well, how close are we? It's now? an important uh, question though. I mean, I'm sympathetic right. to the histrionics, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazier. World War would be bad. Yeah, like yeah. this it, we have been in a period of very high tension. So Yeah. I guess the question is like people in Taiwan don't spend too much time thinking about who would win a war um, because not because they don't care or that it obviously would affect their life, but because, you know, you ask anyone, I mean, anyone, right. They, like the entire life has been under the threat of war. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, for like the rest of the world who forgets about, or, you know, they're, they don't think about Taiwan constantly. The topic has to be reintroduced periodically. Who would win a war between the U S and China over Taiwan? Definitely. And it's like kind of jarring. Um, probably for, I'm sure it was like jarring for anyone who lives in a quote unquote hotspot around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yep. Oh, sorry. I just had like one last question for Andy on this, which is that, um, um, I think also in one of those pieces, when Lou of new bloom was sort of making an interesting argument, which is that, um, for a certain segment of the Taiwanese left, they Mm -hmm. kind of appreciated Pelosi's visit in some way that there's a kind this kind of dance of recognition where to yeah. have a sort of um, you know not just nationalist but a kind of movement culture where you know being Taiwanese is something that you're proud of and that you can identify yeah. with you do certain you do need some 
kinds of international recognition. So I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I mean, Tsai, the the president Taiwan, yeah. Tsai Ing-wen, she was the one who invited Pelosi. She tried to arrange the visit, um, right. and she's the she represents the Green. They don't want to say independent, but you know, basically the pro Taiwanese yeah. faction. So um, I don't know if everyone on the left feels the same way. I asked my friend, who I think is. I don't know if she's green, green, but she's like an academic our age. So she's like, you know, politically leftist and she was not happy with the visit because okay. she felt like it was just, you know, it's like, how do you feel like, how does the leftist feel about geopolitics? Is it just something they want to actually participate in? Well, that's in? a thing. Yeah. Or like if you were, and you know, when you're from a small country, I feel, and this is where I kind of feel like there are, you know, uncanny, you know, similarities with Ukraine. Like when you're a small country, you're at the whims of these superpowers. And so you could be like, you know, that whole game is corrupt. We don't want anything to do with any superpowers. Or you could take an equally valid position is to say, we are at the whims of these superpowers, so we have to play the game and we exactly. have to look for the right superpower to check the other superpower we don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think both are valid positions. You know, it's a tough position to be in when you're a small country like this. Yeah. Um, I think, like, I don't really have, but like, and then my parents were like on the opposite end of the political spectrum. They were like, you know, they hate the Democrats anyway, <laughs> much less if they visit Taiwan. So, <laughs> They were, okay. they were not happy with the visit or they were just like, this is just Pelosi. I don't know. They have some theory about her husband and his investments in China and how they, yeah, that seems a little far. Yeah, I mean, like, he has or or committed what I consider insider trading based on a lot of her stuff. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Creating an international incident to, you know, yeah, yeah like that, it's like a you know there are many things sure. i would believe but this one i'm just like i, I know this is like their version of like <laughs> watching taiwanese fox news you know right, it's like right. this, that's their explanation but um yeah but they were definitely on the side of like this is dumb this is a distraction why are the democrats doing this um um so yeah for my parents they don't really care about taiwanese identity and all that stuff um they, they would actually just think the most stable thing is to like do nothing um, yeah. and have China informally, just basically to be informally recognized by China and I don't know, maybe inch closer to unification or something. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a minority segment of Taiwan, but yeah. some, I think older people in Taiwan do feel that way. Um, but yeah, like I'm sure there's many leftists and many, uh, especially, you know, people of the green party who, who really wanted this. Um, you know, this is the, the weird thing about being in Taiwan. Like, you're a leftist, you're pro-progressive and all this stuff, but you basically need the U.S. empire to support you. Otherwise, there's no way you're going to withstand yeah. on your own uh, a Chinese, you know, Chinese attack or Chinese invasion. Right. So, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. All right. And, Tammy, do you have anything else? Andy, anything else you want to say about yeah. this thing? Um. Uh, the other interesting thing is the PRC did issue like this official um, white paper where they kind of put their official stance on Taiwan out there. With they do this every few decades, and the latest version is kind of like this last one where like one China two systems blah blah blah. They apparently in the last version had a sentence about how they will not resort to military tactics to reunify Taiwan, and now that line is not in there. So I think that was another. Mm. That was another thing people are looking at. Not that China would like announce their intention to go to war through an official document, but maybe it's just a threat, like it's a veiled threat, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay. Well, Andy, it's good to have you back. Hey, yep. Andy. Um, good to be back. Yeah. Once. How's uh, how's your how's your new life going? <laughs> Without us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, we ran into ran into each other on the street. 
Hey, how's it going? <laughs> yeah, what's going on? <laughs> oh, really? Great. What school is your kid going to? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, you're welcome anytime. Obviously, as we said, you know, we're happy that you're back. I think the listeners will be very happy. It's a great trip down memory lane of what three months ago or something like right. that two months ago um yeah i don't know yeah We're, this is fun um you know we'll have you back when basketball season starts how about that <laughs> i know my last episode was right before i got to dance on the celtics grave i didn't I know, get to celebrate i know it's sad <laughs> i don't know i'm like i've become much more i've started to identify you know like i'm right, like you were invested these, in the celtics by the end I'm like one of these Asians who goes to college and suddenly becomes super Asian, you know? And now I'm like, uh, you know, invested more in my Celtics fandom childhood, right? Do you want KD? I I am a Celtics fan. No, I don't (laughs) want KD. Yeah, okay. No. no. That seems pretty universal. Although I will say that, like, I have basically realized that I have the same problems as Kevin Durant, you know? Yeah. Like, I just keep switching jobs and, like, you know, (laughs) like, I just, like, I, I always feel like a great discontent right he's a freelancer that's his... right he's just a freelancer and yeah. like you know like i've just come to accept that this is just who i am mm-hmm. and that like i'm not gonna fix it and that maybe <laughs> that's not even something to fix right um that each each person has his own journey through life right and <laughs> um and that i understand what kevin durant is going through you know because like this restlessness is right. certainly something that i can identify with and so i don't get mad at him you know, but so I can like identify that he's probably just, it's not great for him to keep doing this, you know, no. but, you know, like the heart wants what it wants, you know? And, yeah. Um, <laughs> I kind of feel bad for him. I feel bad for him too. I actually think like, I have basically just like, <laughs> I think that he's like, I think that his general thing is just that he doesn't quite understand why people think things about him that they do. Right. Because his thought is just like, I am awesome at basketball. And I thought that this was basketball, you know, Mm. like people should love me because I'm amazing at basketball and that um, and that people don't respond that way. You know, they they have all sorts of emotions tied up in basketball and um, loyalty is one of them. Right. And a sense of like, oh, well, but whether or not this is good for him or bad for him is not really anyone's business, you know, right. Like. Are they not going to be entertained if Kevin Durant goes to like the New Orleans Pelicans, for example, and like with Zion ends up like as the five seed in the West and like, you know, like, I don't know, like gets to the Western Conference finals and is awesome. Of course, they'll be compelled by that, you know? Um, Yeah, I think it's compelling to see him crash and burn also. That's kind of what's going on. Right. But I don't think that's going to happen because he's so awesome, you know, like and it's just like you know like in some ways he's kind of right but then the question with him is just like at what point is it just gonna like be so so many iterations of this that like he's actually not gonna and that he's gonna be so old yeah that he's just not gonna be good at basketball anymore now my thought is that he's just gonna end up with the nets again and everything that's where it's like now and they're probably you know they might they might very well win next year you know no they're not Kyrie. I don't know, man. No. He's awesome. No. You know. I um, <laughs> I think I think he's lost a lot of fans this summer. I know, I know, that's true. But like who cares? You know, he's still awesome. I don't know, it doesn't matter to his life. He's a I, I also think a, that like fans are super rich. temperamental, you know, like where it's like, look, everyone hated him in the Nets too, and until he almost yeah. beat the Bucks by himself, you know, and then they all loved him again, you know? 
Yeah. No one was rooting for Brooklyn during that series. Everyone wanted Giannis to win. And then like Durant was awesome. And then they loved him again. You know, like that's all it is. is If you're awesome, then people will love you. (laughs) You know, like that's basically it. And he kind of understands that fundamentally. And yet he's so bad at every other part of it that like in terms of like, you know, PR type of stuff that Mm -hmm. uh, it's just weird. But it's also like he doesn't like here's the thing about him. It's like he hasn't hurt anyone, you know? Like he isn't right. a bad person. Like he doesn't. Right. He he's not like he's right. not like Deshaun right. Watson like, or something right, like exactly. that, right? Like where like <laughs> he's just a guy who just keeps switching teams. You know, he's not I, doing anything. I think I think on TV, everyone has like your take, Jay. Like he's amazing and he's one of the best players ever. I think for just the average fan, a lot of people have don't like him. They would rather not have anything to do with them. No, no, I agree right now. Yeah. But do you think they'll feel that way? When he's like, I didn't even think the Bucks thing. Yeah. People were like, "Oh, that was cool," but they weren't like KD fans afterwards. But oh, I like, think they were. I think, I think it was were. like players on TV were like, "That guy." Was oh, amazing. I, I, I think that like basically, he is yeah. at. It's very rare to be at this level. Like I think most players don't get to this level, but there is a type of level that people get to, where your excellence can win people over. I mean, think about how much people hated LeBron, you know, and then like it was really just because he was so awesome that it won people over. I, I think that he's at that level. I think <laughs> oh, that if no, they no, I think no. if they do really well, that people will that everyone will just come back no. and they'll forget about it. I think I he mean, got so many people mad with that Golden State move and now well, the Golden State them. move was a was most, the big most fans. Most, most people fans, were just people are mad about the decision too. Yeah, you know. I know. But then so, LeBron faked his way back into a super team with his home team. I think most fans <laughs> care about the soap opera aspect as, you know, they like they like the aesthetics of the game, but they actually care about all the soap opera interpersonal stuff. Oh, that see, front- I agree. I disagree. I think it's flipped. I think that the soap opera interpersonal stuff is the stuff that the, you know, woke media elites care about. And I think the real blue collar fans, you know, just root for their <laughs> They just root for their teams. And yes, they hate Kevin Durant, but you know, they're Nets fans. They, they, they just want Kevin Durant to come back. And I just think that at some level it's like, yeah, maybe they dislike him, but like, uh, you know, it's not like they think about him all that much. And if he's awesome, then they're just going to really like him. I don't know. Yeah. If he goes to Boston, he'll have a whole fan base, but it'll be really weird. It'll be weird, but I don't think he's going to Boston. All right. That's Sorry. enough time. I got to go. Yeah. Um, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, Andy's back uh, for this week, but he will not, you know, this is not a, uh, he's yeah, going to be back. In the Don't get your hopes up. We'll bring you back when the NBA comes back. Or How about that? Does, you can substitute that? for me. We could do, yeah, we could do preview. <laughs> um, and uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to goodbye.substack.com. There you'll get access to our Discord server. If you want to talk to Andy about the NBA, Andy still, <laughs> you still lurk around the NBA channel, Andy. I uh, this I am basically confined to things He's I can do there. on my phone, internet-wise. Yeah, yeah. So lurking so you, the NBA channel and Twitter is about it. Yeah, so you can talk to Andy about the NBA and our NBA channel, which is mostly about the Clippers. <laughs> the conversation. Is like, if you're a Clippers fan and you want to talk about the Clippers, you should join our. There Discord are a lot channel. of Clippers fans. Weirdly. There's never been more Clippers conversation um, in any online space than on our Discord. But no Lakers. Um, I mean, there's like one Lakers fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like on. some Mavericks fans. I don't know. You know, we we're, we have multitudes here. There, it, it's not just Knicks Knicks conversations. Um, but yeah. Uh, Andy, thanks for coming back, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Bye.